This is the 74th Tony Awards, and yet I am only the first Latine writer to win in this category. The LGBTQ community is large, varied, and unconnected by blood. There is no guarantee that any two LGBTQ people will agree on their feelings on words that have been traditionally used as homophobic or transphobic slurs. We have teetered and toppled over the parapet of honeymoon bliss and fallen to the ground below, stirred from the anaesthetizing effects of the sexy brain chemicals that have propelled us along thus far with relative ease. Welcome to This Way Out, the international LGBTQ radio magazine. I'm Lucia Chappelle. German voters elect two trans MPs, Tony Wynn and Latin A writer talks inclusion, and the breakup monologues finds humor in heartache. Those stories and more this week because you found This Way Out. I'm John Dyer V. And I'm Wendy Natividad. With Newswrap a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBTQ communities around the world for the week ending October 2nd, 2021. German voters elected their first two transgender members of parliament this week, in addition to dethroning longtime Chancellor Angela Merkel. With about 25.7% of the vote, the center-left Social Democrats and their candidate Olaf Scholz defeated Merkel's center-right Christian Democratic Union by just over one point. That ends Chancellor Merkel's 16-year tenure. With almost 15% of the vote, the Green Party enjoyed its best-ever third-place finish, including the election of trans candidates Tessa Ganzerar and Nike Slavik. 44-year-old Ganzerar first served as a member of Bavaria's regional parliament. 27-year-old political newcomer Slavik's campaign focused on combating climate change and the creation of a national action plan to fight anti-LGBTQ discrimination and violence. Anti-queer hate crimes in Germany rose by 36% last year, according to police figures. Merkel stays in power until the Social Democrats elect the next chancellor. Vice-Chancellor Olaf Scholz will likely lead a coalition government, since his party only won about one in four seats in the Bundeshag, or parliament. Before the federal elections, Merkel's government finally made good on its promise to compensate people who were investigated or prosecuted for homosexuality during the Nazi reign of terror. The Federal Office of Justice announced at the end of August that 317 people had applied for compensation. 249 of them have received a total of almost 860,000 euros, slightly more than a million U.S. dollars. The application deadline is July 21, 2022. This week, the Taipei High Administrative Court struck down the requirement that trans people provide proof of reassignment surgery and the full removal of reproductive organs before they can legally change their gender. Transgender plaintiff Xiao Yi filed suit on April 1st, the International Trans Day of Visibility. She had not been allowed to change the gender designation on her national ID card because she had no proof of surgery. She was represented by the Taiwan Alliance to Promote Civil Partnership Rights, the advocacy group that successfully won marriage equality. The September 23rd High Court ruling declared that the proof of surgery requirement was unconstitutional. That ruling can still be appealed by the Interior Ministry, according to the Taipei Times. The decision only applies to Xiao Yi. 
The UK's Gay Times explains that others seeking a legal gender change without proof of surgery will have to wait for the government to revise current regulations or file their own lawsuits. Pressure from the European Union has succeeded in getting four Polish provinces to repeal their LGBT-free zone declarations. Lawmakers in Szwentak Szuszkia responded to the threatened denial of EU funding on September 22nd. Four days later, Padkar Paskie, Lubelskie, and Malopolskia followed suit, and the Sydney Star Observer reports that discussions are also underway in the province of Lutski. The European Commission wrote to all five provincial governments in early September, advising them that their anti-queer declarations violated EU law. They were threatened with the loss of much-needed cash if they failed to remove them. Poland's COVID-19 recovery allocation was at stake, more than 1.5 billion euros. Close to 100 local governments in Poland have passed LGBT-free zone laws since 2019. The legislation has had the backing of the government's ruling far-right Law and Justice Party and the politically powerful Roman Catholic Church. The Polish government once promised to reimburse local governments who lost EU funding because of their anti-queer declarations. More recent reports suggest that it is quietly urging the provinces to overturn those policies in order to get the funding. In neighboring Hungary, Prime Minister Viktor Orban bristles at the EU's threats. The European Commission has yet to approve pandemic recovery funding to his government of up to 819 billion euros, or about 950 billion U.S. dollars. Orban told local state media that the EU is withholding the funding because of the debate around LGBTQ policy. The country recently banned any positive depictions of same-gender love or gender transition that could be available to minors buried in a bill to clamp down on pedophilia. The government says the restrictions apply to schools, the media, and even books. Hungary's Justice Minister Judith Varga argued in a mid-September Facebook post that the country has the right to protect what he called its culture, national identity, and family values rooted in them. He said, They try to punish us only because we don't let the LGBTQ lobby into Hungarian schools and kindergartens. Meanwhile, Hungary's media regulator has published guidelines to broadcasters that equate films portraying homosexuality or gender identity issues with gory horror movies, again under the guise of protecting children. The revised guidelines from the National Media and Infocommunications Authority are an apparent follow-up to the earlier law banning queer-positive portrayals. The regulator now classifies Oscar-winning queer Spanish director Pedro Almodovar's All About My Mother and the L Word TV series with the same age restrictions as the Saw horror movie franchise or The Exorcist. Kenya's Film Classification Board has banned a documentary film about a gay man's struggle for acceptance and his relationship with another man. The board calls I Am Samuel unacceptable as well as demeaning to Christianity. They say it's an affront to the constitutional recognition of the family as the basic unit of society and the definition of civil marriage as between two persons of the opposite sex. The film follows the real-life Samuel over five years and took two years to edit. Private, consensual, adult, same-gender sex is still a crime in Kenya. Anyone venturing out of the closet risks anti-queer discrimination and violence. As is the case on much of the continent, sexual and gender minorities are generally taboo subjects in the deeply religious country. Filmmaker Pete Murimi tweeted about the commonality that comes through in I Am Samuel. He said, We all fall in love. We all contend with family expectations. 
the biggest difference is Samuel, our main character, had to also reckon with homophobia and violence. The government warns anyone who attempts to exhibit, distribute, broadcast, or possess I Am Samuel in Kenya that they will be met with the full force of the law. The Film Classification Board banned the Kenyan lesbian love story Rafiki in 2018, even though it premiered to rave reviews at the Cannes Film Festival. The Rafiki ban was eventually overturned in court, and the film went on to enjoy major box office success. Finally, Thailand's Constitutional Court continues to avoid issuing its ruling on a marriage equality case without explanation. A ruling was first scheduled for April, then it was postponed to June. On September 28th, the High Court kicked the proverbial can down the road again. The case began in December 2020. Perm Sub Sa Yong and Puang Pei Heng Kam had been a couple for more than 12 years when their marriage registration was rejected at Bangkok's Pasi Charon District Office because they are both women. Their lawyers argued that the civil code definition of marriage as only between one man and one woman violates constitutional guarantees of equality. A bill to legally recognize queer couples was first introduced years ago in Thailand's parliament, but it's gone nowhere. The Constitutional Court gets another chance to evade the issue on December 14th. That's News Rep, global queer news with attitude, for the week ending October 2nd, 2021. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Rep is written by Greg Gordon, edited by Lucia Chappell. Produced by Brian DeShazor and brought to you by you. Help keep us in ears around the world at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast and much more. And you can read the transcript and listen to News Wrap each week by subscribing to our This Way Out radio channel on YouTube. For This Way Out, I'm Wendy Natividad. Stay healthy. And I'm John Dyer the Fifth. Stay safe. The origin of the word faggot can be traced back to ancient Greece, where it was used to mean a bundle of sticks used as fuel to light a fire. The word dyke first became popular in the Harlem neighborhood of New York City in the 1920s. Slurs that blur and revealing words later in the program. Broadway bowed to several queer-related shows and artists at this year's Tony Awards on September 26th, but one acceptance speech stood out. Take your seat at the Inheritance and take a ride on the sensation critics are calling a blockbuster, a masterpiece, a raucously funny Netflix-like binge of a Broadway show, a family of friends hungry to conquer life in New York, but forging a future means facing truths from the past. Get ready for the roller coaster Broadway event of the year: The Inheritance. Get your tickets today. The Inheritance won multiple awards, including Best New Play. Playwright Matthew Lopez spoke passionately about what was a historic landmark. Thank you to our producers, Tom Hunter, Sonia, David Land, the young Vic, um, Stephen Daldry, my love of my life, Stephen Daldry. I saw the Tony Awards when um, uh, Inspector Call swept. Like when I was maybe like 12 or 13, and I, I watched that, and I thought, you know, put him on the list for inheritance. <laughs> I love you. Um, thank you for this gift that is this gorgeous production to our cast, both in London and New York, um, to Elizabeth Williamson, my dramaturg, 
uh, who read every draft of this play, and to my beautiful husband, Brandon, who wrote, who read, who wrote, wrote yeah, he actually wrote the play. Um, <laughs> um, who has given me so much encouragement, so much tough love and sweet love, and um, my life wouldn't be the same without you. Uh, I wrote this next bit down in, in case this happened, because I didn't want to get any of it wrong. I'm a writer, not an actor, you know. Um, I wouldn't be standing here tonight if it weren't for the lives of three queer men. E.M. Forster, who started writing this play a century ago, and who inspired me to become a writer. Terence McNally, my friend and my mentor, who was the spiritual godfather of this play, who encouraged me to become a writer, and who I know is right now watching with that impish smile on his face, whispering in our ears, I told you so. Miguel Pinheiro, the first Puerto Rican playwright to be produced on Broadway. <laughs> who opened the door for me and who allowed me the opportunity to become a writer. This is the 74th Tony Awards, and yet I am only the first Latin A writer to win in this category. <laughs> I say that not to elicit your applause, but to highlight the fact the Latin A community is underrepresented in American theater, in New York theater, and most especially on Broadway. We constitute 19% of the United States population, and we represent about 2% of the playwrights having plays on Broadway in the last decade. This must change. We are a vibrant community reflecting a vast array of cultures, experiences, and yes, skin tones. We have so many stories to tell. They are inside of us, aching to come out. Let us tell you our stories. Thank you for this. Thank you. That was Best Playwright Matthew Lopez at this year's Tony Awards. Hello, this is the actor Michael Emerson, Ben on Lost. It's not easy being one of the others, so if time travel or moving the island isn't an option and you're feeling sort of lost, try listening to Greg and Lucia on This Way Out. This Way Out is supported in part by contributions from our listeners. Some give a little each month, some make a larger annual contribution. More information and a link to give are online at thiswayout.org. Surely if I left this one, I'd be breaking up with love altogether. It would be my end game. In and out of love with comedian author Rosie Wilby. But first... Contrary to the popular expression, sticks and stones thrown with words can be just as damaging as the other kind. The outcasting Overtime crew explores verbal violence and liberating labels. This is Outcasting Overtime for Media for the Public Good, producer of Public Radio's LGBTQ youth programs. Hi, I'm Isha, an Outcasting youth participant. 
On this edition, Outcasters Chris and Lil, along with Outcasting graduate Sarah, consider slurs that have been used against LGBTQ people, and sometimes within the community, and how they affect us as LGBTQ youth. The actor Matt Damon made news recently when he said he was finally going to stop casually saying the F-slur for a homosexual, but not until his young daughter called him out on it. The use of these slurs, especially by non-LGBTQ people, can be extremely rude and offensive, and a lot of people think that maybe Matt Damon should have stopped referring to people using the F-slur a decade or two ago, or even longer. In this edition, some of these slurs will be spoken aloud. So if you're offended or triggered by anti-LGBTQ slurs, please listen with caution. Outcaster Chris delivers this commentary. Slurs are words that are used or historically have been used with the intent of harming a specific group. Slurs have historically been used against the LGBTQ community as tools of discrimination, but the use and meaning of some of these words has changed over time as the LGBTQ community has found more acceptance. Terms that were originally deeply offensive and were only ever used to harm have been reclaimed by our communities. The slurs faggot, dyke, and queer are part of this phenomenon of words that were originally offensive entering into the everyday lexicon of LGBTQ people. The origin of the word faggot can be traced back to ancient Greece, where it was used to mean a bundle of sticks used as fuel to light a fire. By the 16th century, the English had adopted it as a derogatory term to describe women, and later on, the word evolved into a derogatory term for gay men due to their perceived femininity. It's not uncommon today to hear the F-word hurled back and forth by teenage boys, not to imply that their friends are literally gay, but that they are acting effeminately or in a way that's just not cool, or to hear gay men bullied, harassed, or even assaulted with this term. At the same time, some gay men use this word playfully or even in a celebratory way as a reclamation of something that has been directed towards them in hate for so long. But given the hateful and often bloody history of this word, it is never okay to use it to refer to someone you don't already know is comfortable with it, or to use it in a formal or written context as a descriptor. The word dyke is much more commonly used as a personal descriptor, and less commonly as a schoolyard insult. The word first became popular in the Harlem neighborhood of New York City in the 1920s. It originated as a longer and equally crude word, bull dyke, which referred for many years specifically to masculine lesbians. By the 1950s, dyke had morphed into a derogatory term used by straight people towards lesbians in general. It still carries weight today in the mouths of homophobes, but in the 1970s, there was a fairly successful lesbian movement to reclaim the slur, and it's not uncommon for lesbians today to call themselves dykes or include the word in the names of their organizations. Recently, a student who I know to be bisexual referred to the D-word in class. That surprised me. I have no issue with bisexual women using the word dyke, or with straight people talking about the dyke march or dykes on bikes. I would never call another lesbian a dyke without knowing she felt comfortable with that as an identifier, and straight people certainly should not either. But something interesting about the word dyke is that I think in some circles it's more accepted by older lesbians than people my age. Young people, like the girl in my class, prefer to err on the side of caution. I do think it's a case of erring here, but I didn't raise my hand to correct her. Everyone experiences these words differently as a symptom of where they grew up, how old they are, and their experience of life, and no one is more right than anyone else. The word queer is even more controversial. Originally, and still in some contexts, meaning odd, it was first used to describe gay men in 1894, after which it became regularly used by American newspapers as a derogatory term for homosexuality, labeling it as odd and abnormal. Today, it is not an uncommon form of self-identification, spelling out the Q in LGBTQ. 
Some refer to the LGBTQ community as the queer community, while other people still feel uncomfortable or offended by the word. The word generally seems to be more popular with younger LGBTQ people, but of course age isn't the only determinant of opinion. There are still places in the U.S. where queer is a serious and frequent insult from heterosexual tormentors. Also, while some people like queer for its use as an umbrella term to include many sexualities or identities, other people dislike it for that very same reason. The LGBTQ community is large, varied, and unconnected by blood. There is no central authority on what is or is not acceptable, and no guarantee that any two LGBTQ people will agree on anything, from politics to movies, and definitely including their feelings on words that have been traditionally used as homophobic or transphobic slurs. You might meet people who describe themselves as dykes or identify as queer, but I wouldn't use these terms in reference to someone unless you know they're alright with it. Whether or not it's alright to call it the queer community, well, I could give you my opinion, but any other gay person might give you 10 reasons why I'm completely and utterly wrong. Thanks for listening to Outcasting Overtime, from Outcasting Media, creator of Public Radio's LGBTQ youth programs. Outcasting Media is a production of Media for the Public Good, based in New York. This piece was created by Outcasting team members Lil, Sarah, and Chris. Our executive producer is Mark Sophus. Visit us at outcastingmedia.org to get information about outcasting, watch outcasting videos, access our social media links, and listen to outcasting and related content. You can also find outcasting on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and other major podcast platforms. Thanks, and thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Bruce Valanche. When I'm not lounging at Sky Bar with Bed or Whoopi, I'm listening to This Way Out. Please do stay tuned. London comedian Rosie Wilby is a longtime This Way Out contributor and a researcher into the psychology of breakups. Her new book is called The Breakup Monologues, The Unexpected Joy of Heartbreak. In this excerpt from the prologue, you'll see that Rosie may be funny, but she's not joking. You look beautiful today. Thanks, baby. You're a bit into me today, aren't you? I'm always into you. No, you're not. True. We're driving to a festival in Girlfriend's midlife crisis car, an electric blue BMW convertible. Although the way she drives makes me wonder if you can still describe it as a midlife crisis if it ends up killing us. That would be an end of life crisis and quite a crisis at that. Never mind. The sun is shining. Our life is good. We have a fancy loft conversion. We go on ski holidays. We Google things like, can dog eat mange too? After two decades of scratching out a creative existence from gig to gig, first as a wistful indie songwriter, then as a willfully grassrootsy comedian, I now get to live like a wanker because my libido went all aspirational on me and drew me to a partner with an actual job. However, three months shy of our three-year anniversary, Shit has got real. Girlfriend and I have reached a refreshing level of frankness about the fact that our mutual desire has waned. 
We have teetered and toppled over the parapet of honeymoon bliss and fallen to the ground below, stirred from the anaesthetising effects of the sexy brain chemicals that have propelled us along thus far with relative ease. Suddenly, we are acutely aware of the careers and friends that we have neglected during the happy haze. We have reached the stage where being in a relationship with a fellow human has become a massive pain in the ass. Even though it is a largely excellent relationship that neither of us intends to leave. Repeat, we are not going to break up, not for the foreseeable, not us. In fact, it is the first time I've reached this point and not been planning a daring, dramatic escape. Counting up the significant partners whom I probably would have married if it had been legally available to me all along, I'm now onto my fifth wife. That puts me on a multi-marriage par with Joan Collins. Already, at the age of 48, she was 68 when she married her final husband. If I was going to continue to be a slave to serial monogamy, and if you're reading this, darling girlfriend, of course I'm not, I would have ample time to overtake her and catch up with Liz Taylor and her seven husbands, one of whom she married twice, or even Jar Jar Gabor and her tally of nine. But... I'm done with twisting. I think I'd like to stick. I found a funny, sexy, generous partner, even if she does have a ridiculous knobby car. Surely if I left this one, I'd be breaking up with love altogether. It would be my end game. And it is from this position of at least wanting to stay, of accepting the maddening claustrophobia of companionship, that I want to investigate why breakups continue to compel me so much. Perhaps it is because breakups facilitate and maybe even necessitate transformation. In the wake of a separation, our peers allow us to reinvent ourselves. The rest of the time, they like us to stay fixed so that they can move around and ahead of us. But heartbreak is the golden ticket that circumvents this bullshit. Renewed and reborn, standing at the edge of the echoing canyon of our former frustrations, we shout, this is who I am now and we run and skip away from the parched carcasses of the old selves that we have grown to hate. For me, it has been during these fleeting, liberating gaps of singledom that I have really got shit done. I recorded and released an album. I launched a boutique music PR company. I started comedy. I wrote a book. Each time I harnessed any lingering feelings of anger, sadness and confusion and use them as energising forces for creativity, for moving forwards with new insights into my own shortcomings and foibles. I wonder if it is possible to do that much learning and actively stay in a relationship. I hope so. It must be right, or else all long-term couples would be codependent, emotionally stunted weirdos. Oh, hang on. If Rosie Wilby has whet your appetite for more of the breakup monologues, find out more about the book and Rosie's ruminations about romance in our first imprint interview with This Way Out's Janet Mason. It's featured on our website and in our e-newsletter, Inside This Way Out. To subscribe, write to info at thiswayout.org.
Thanks for finding This Way Out, brought to you by the nonprofit Overnight Productions. Some program material this week came from John Dyer V and Wendy Natividad, produced by Brian DeShazer, and from Outcasters Isha and Chris, produced by Mark Sofas. Thanks also to Michael Taylor Gray, Rosie Wilby, and Janet Mason. George Benson, Seether, and Harry Nielsen performed some of the music you heard, and Kim Wilson composed and performed our theme music. This Way Out thanks the Kicking Assets Fund of the Tides Foundation, the Yvonne Foundation, a bequest from Christopher David Trentum, and donors Paul Bannon and Richard Merck and Brad Payton of Silicon Valley. Listener donors make this program possible. Look for This Way Out Radio on social media, email TWORadio at AOL.com, or write to us at P.O. Box 1065, Los Angeles, California, 90078, USA. For coordinating producer Greg Gordon and all of us at This Way Out, I'm Lucia Chappelle. Thanks for listening online at thiswayout.org and on WUMD Northampton, Massachusetts, KMUN Astoria, Oregon, 2CCC Gosford, New South Wales, and a wide array of community terrestrial and internet radio stations around the world, including this one. Stay healthy, stay safe, and stay tuned, y'all.